Lord, you have said that your power is made perfect in weakness, and so we ask that you would bring some of your power to bear on us who are weak. We are frail, we are broken human beings, and we thank you that you haven't left us in that state to fend for ourselves. Thank you for your grace that is sufficient for everything we face in life. We pray, Father, now as we open your word together that you would speak life into us, encourage us, strengthen us, build our hope, give us confidence as we seek to walk by faith and not by sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. You may be seated. Dragon Slayer, Head Smasher, Snake Stomper, Death Killer. These are all titles we could rightly bestow on Jesus. Author Andy Nacelli, in his short but helpful book, The Serpent and the Serpent Slayer, suggests that a simple way to summarize the Bible's storyline is kill the dragon, get the girl. He explains that the storyline features three main characters the dragon, which is, of course, Satan the damsel in distress, which is the people of God, and the serpent slayer, who is the hero, Jesus. Nacelli suggests that this is why dragon-slaying stories have been so perpetually popular throughout history in all cultures. Such stories echo the true story of history as God has planned it. Many epic stories in literature or even beloved fantasy films don't literally feature dragons or snakes all the time, but the villain is often snake-like or dragon-like in certain ways. Nacelli later distinguishes snakes from dragons according to biblical distinctions. In Scripture, serpents deceive and dragons destroy. The enemies of God and God's people throughout Scripture, also take on these characteristics, sometimes combined together. If kill the dragon, get the girl is a good way to summarize the Bible's storyline, then what is the gospel in such a storyline? What is the good news such a story would present? Well, the hero must have killed the dragon and gotten the girl. And indeed, he did. Last week, we considered the divine judge's curse against the serpent, and we highlighted how the Lord seems to address not merely the snake in the garden, but also the evil entity who had spoken through that snake. In Genesis 3.15, students of Scripture throughout church history have recognized an announcement of the gospel, somewhat vaguely concealed in the words of God's curse against the serpent. The Puritan John Owen said that this verse is the foundation of the Old Testament, and the chief promise of the new covenant itself. Early church leaders developed a Greek word to label this verse as the proto-evangelium, which means simply first gospel, the first announcement of the good news. We left off a close discussion of just how God's words to the serpent communicated this good news, and this morning I'd like for us to take a tour of the Bible to see how this initial promise gets built and developed by later scripture. We will focus first and mostly on Genesis itself. Within Genesis, the conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent is on display, and Moses draws our attention to it at certain times. 
but it's easy to overlook the connections back to Genesis 3.15 in the midst of the otherwise interesting storytelling going on. What is the nature of the gospel communicated in Genesis 3.15? The sermon title consists of a pair of technical terms. Proto-evangelium, as we said, is Greek, meaning first gospel. The other phrase you see in the sermon title, Christus Victor, is a Latin phrase that was used in the early church after the first century to highlight the victory of the Messiah. Particularly, this phrase refers to a way of answering the question, what did Jesus' death accomplish? At different stages of church history, different aspects of the atonement have been emphasized. The earliest emphasis appears to have been this one, the victory of the Messiah over Satan, sin, and death through his death on the cross. In addition to being the dragon slayer, he is also the death killer. As I heard author J. Ryan Lister characterize him in a thoroughly enjoyable audiobook called Emblems of the Infinite King. This morning we want to focus in on the way the gospel is communicated in Genesis 3.15, and then see how the promise becomes clearer as the revelation of Scripture continues, starting in Genesis itself. I invite you to open a Bible to Genesis 3.15 again. Let's consider the words of this promise and carefully draw out the crucial elements. What does the divine judge mean here? I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. As we noted last week, the offspring of the serpent are going to be people who resemble the serpent in his deceptive and destructive ways. The offspring of the woman, then, are going to be people who share her post-rebellion faith. Thus, when a baby is conceived and born, parents do not know whether the baby will grow up to be offspring of the serpent or offspring of the woman. We'll look more closely at how the Bible sketches out the identity of the plural offspring of the woman and the plural offspring of the serpent in just a bit. But before we get there, recall also from last week that the first line indicates that God is ensuring that the alliance the serpent sought with the woman is not going to happen. The serpent, it seems, was seeking to enlist the woman for its creation-upending, chaos-promoting agenda, drawing her allegiance away from the Creator. And initially, it succeeds. However, in judgment, God frustrates the serpent's agenda right at the start. Instead of becoming offspring of the serpent, the Lord preserves the woman and draws her and her husband back to himself. There will be no alliance between the original humans and the serpent, or Satan who empowers the serpent. The key promise, however, is in the second half of the verse. Here the Lord points to a single male descendant of the woman. The Hebrew emphatically utilizes a masculine singular pronoun to make this clear. He shall bruise your head. Now the English word bruise is confusing for us. When we think of bruising, we think of discoloration of the skin and swelling due to blunt force trauma. While that can be severe, we normally don't think of bruising as fatal. Interestingly, the English word bruise is just carried over from the King James Version. This is an example of what a scholar by the name of Mark Ward has identified as false friends. It's one of the main reasons the King James Version is harder to understand for modern readers. Words change meaning over time in every language. The word bruise actually meant something different in the 1600s. You can track this down in the Oxford English Dictionary. 
The archaic meaning of the word bruise was to break, to smash, to destroy or damage by breaking or smashing. So bruise was an accurate term to translate the Hebrew word in the 1600s, but no one uses the word bruise that way today. The Hebrew word is a challenge in itself because it doesn't appear often in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, it is relatively clear that a good translation equivalent that gets the point across would be the word strike. The male offspring of the woman will strike Satan on his head while Satan strikes this male offspring on the heel. Now, the prophecy continues with the imagery of Satan utilizing a serpent. Thus, we have a picture of a man stomping on the head of a snake as the snake rears up and bites the man's foot. Clearly, the snake is destroyed. Crushing a snake's head or cutting it off is the best way to kill a snake. But what about a snake bite to the foot? Well, if the snake is venomous, that too can be fatal. So while we can admit the poetic prophecy has a bit of ambiguity, I think we should conclude that the picture is this. The snake and the man kill each other. The snake issues a fatal blow, not merely an injury from which the man will recover, as the word bruise might imply today. Instead, especially as we see the fulfillment of this prophecy, it is Jesus' death on the cross that defeats the devil. And he really does die. And that's crucially important. We see here a prophecy that the last Adam will do what the first Adam should have done but failed to do. It is a man who will destroy the devil. Now, let's just observe how vague this is. The promise is that this future man and Satan will kill each other. How is this good news? Well, the crushing of Satan indicates the final defeat of the spiritual entity that led humanity astray in the first place. There may also be an implication that the enmity, the hostility, the conflict, the warfare indicated in the first part of the verse will be ended when this final crushing takes place. But consider a possible motive for why the Lord would be quite vague here. Perhaps he speaks in this cryptic manner so as to ensure that Satan wouldn't have a clear picture of the plan ahead of time. Perhaps this is why so much messianic prophecy in the Old Testament is similarly cryptic. But the cryptic nature of this prophecy is clarified gradually as the book of Genesis continues. And we'll even see the interplay between the corporate offspring of the woman, her descendants, plural, narrowing down to the intended singular male descendant who would prove victorious over Satan even as Satan kills him. We turn now to consider this development. So who are the offspring of the woman? How does the book of Genesis continue the story? We can begin to simply look for the next time the word offspring occurs in the Bible. Turn over to Genesis 4, 25. I'm sure you remember the intervening story. Adam and Eve conceive, and Eve gives birth to a son, and she names him Cain. Then they're granted another son, and he, she names him Abel. They grow up, and at some time later, after the Lord accepts Abel's sacrifices but rejects Cain's sacrifices, Cain murders Abel. Then sometime later, we read in Genesis 4:25, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. Notice how Eve uses the word offspring to refer to a single male child. She sees Seth as, in a certain sense, replacing Abel. 
Abel, whose sacrifices had been acceptable to the Lord, which other biblical writers are going to see as evidence of his righteousness, has been violently murdered. Now the Lord sees Sets Seth, the Lord sets Seth, that's the Hebrew play on words there, sets Seth, appointed Seth in Eve's family as her offspring. And in the very next verse, we find Seth having a son. And Moses summarizes, at that time, people began to call upon the name of Yahweh. Thus, Moses hints at Seth's righteousness. From here, we can look for the next reference to human offspring in Genesis, and it's not until chapter 9 in relation to Noah and his family. But as a bridge to get there, we have a genealogy in Genesis 5 that moves from Adam to Noah, seemingly documenting the ongoing production of the offspring of the woman through several generations. Noah famously is referred to as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and he received grace from Yahweh as the Lord rescued him and his family on the great ark bringing them safely through the global flood of universal judgment. Then in chapter 9, after the family has safely disembarked onto dry ground, we hear the Lord saying these words in verses 9 and 11. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is is primarily a covenant relationship between God and Noah and his family, but it extends also to the animals and all of creation. But primarily, we should view it as a covenant relationship between God and the new humanity. As we'll see when we get there, this is a mere renewal or continuation of the covenant relationship the Creator had originally set up between himself and the original humanity, Adam and Eve and by implication, all of the original creation. But the point to observe for today is that there is covenantal blessing offered to Noah and his plural offspring, his descendants. The line of the offspring of the woman continues. But, as we'll come back to in just a minute, there is a wrinkle. One of Noah's offspring proves to be offspring of the serpent, and thus will receive a curse rather than a covenantal blessing. In chapter 11, we find another genealogy that continues tracking the offspring of the woman. And it runs from Noah's son, Shem, to Terah, who, like Noah, had three sons, one of whom is named Abram. God chooses Abram to continue the offspring of the woman, and God will initiate a new covenant with him. This is where things get very interesting. The Lord's initial promise to Abram in chapter 12, verse 2, includes the line, I will make of you a great nation which surely implies offspring without using the word. But as the Lord repeats his promises to Abram a number of times, the word offspring appears frequently. We won't look at every single one, but I'll summarize and group them for the sake of time. And we'll zoom in on one particularly important occasion. The promises to Abram are usually summarized as dealing with three major themes. Multiplied offspring, possession of the land of Canaan, and blessing extended to the nations. Let's see how this plays out. First, in Genesis 12, 7, we read, Then Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. I'm sure you recall that when the Lord makes this promise, Abram has zero offspring. And he's already 75 years old. Then, as the promise is repeated, the multiplication of Abram's offspring is announced several times. 
In Genesis 13, 16, Abram is told that his offspring will be as uncountable as the specks of dust on the earth. Then in Genesis 15, 5, he is told that his offspring will be as uncountable as the stars. So clearly, this is plural offspring being referred to. Multiple descendants, a great multitude that no one could number, to borrow a relevant phrase from the book of Revelation. Building on this, let's read Genesis 17, 4 4 to 8. This is in the context of the Lord instituting the practice of circumcision as the sign of the covenant for Abram and his descendants. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations." I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Notice here that God commanded and commissioned Adam and Eve, that what God commissioned Adam and Eve to do in the garden, be fruitful and multiply, here the Lord promises to enable Abraham to do. I will make you fruitful, exceedingly fruitful. There are two other important details we must see here. First, the Lord promises that Abraham will be the father of not merely a multitude of descendants, but a multitude of nations. Paul makes much of this important promise in Romans as he speaks of its fulfillment in the church. Second, the Lord promises that kings shall come from you. This promise will be repeated and specified as kings descended from Abraham and his wife Sarah. This is the Lord's response to their scheme to gain offspring through the Egyptian slave Hagar, which is not how the Lord intends to fulfill his promises to them. As Abraham has now fathered a son, it's important to see how the Lord narrows the focus of the promised offspring. The continuation of the offspring of the woman will not be through Hagar, but only through Sarah. Thus, the promise is reiterated in Genesis 17, 19, where the Lord insists that he will cause Sarah in her old age to bear a son. And the Lord instructs them to name him Isaac. And he extends the covenantal promises to Isaac and his offspring. Then after Abraham demonstrates his trusting obedience in being willing to sacrifice Isaac to the Lord, the Lord reiterates the promise once more. And we need to look closely here. The text is Genesis 22, 17 and 18. I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Exactly as we see in Genesis 3.15, we have the pronoun shift from plural offspring to singular offspring within the scope of two sentences. Unfortunately, if you're reading the NASB or the NIV or the CSB or the New King James Version, you'll see the plural pronoun there instead, suggesting that this promise is merely focused on the nation of Israel having victory over their enemies. However, recent biblical scholarship has confirmed that the singular pronoun shift is intentional and demonstrates that the author was intending to shift our attention 
to the victory of a single male offspring connecting back to the promise of Genesis 3.15. Thus, flowing out of the end of verse 17, the offspring in verse 18 is surely a reference to this single male offspring as well. So the promise originally stated to Abram in chapter 12, when the Lord first appeared to him, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abram, is now clarified that it will be through a particular individual male descendant of Abram that the Lord would bring blessing to all the nations. And there's more. In Genesis 24, Abraham sends his servant to procure a wife for his son Isaac. It is Rebekah whom the Lord identifies as the chosen wife. As her family prepares to send her off to marry Isaac, we read in Genesis 24, 60, And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. The New American Standard, unfortunately, further obscures the significance of this poetic verse by translating offspring as plural descendants. The first part of the blessing is plural, with the reference to thousands and ten thousands. But just as we've observed in Genesis 3.15 and 22.17, there's a shift from plural to singular, that is marked in the Hebrew text. In this verse, for some reason, the NASB doesn't even provide a footnote to let readers know that the pronoun is singular, which they did in 22.17. But we need to press on. The Lord appears later to Isaac and reiterates the promises to him, indicating that the number of his offspring will be like the stars. They will possess the land of Canaan. And then, in Genesis 28, Isaac prays, for the promises to be fulfilled through his son Jacob. As he directs Jacob to marry someone from their own family, unlike Esau, who had married Hittite women, much to the distress of his parents, he asks the Lord to make him fruitful and multiply him so that he might become a company of peoples. Then he prays that the Lord would extend the blessing of Abraham to Jacob and to his plural offspring so that they might possess the land of Canaan. Then at the end of Genesis 28, the Lord himself appears to Jacob in the famous ladder dream. In this dream, the Lord promises to give to Jacob and to his offspring the land of Canaan. And he promises that his offspring will be as uncountable as the dust of the earth. And that through Jacob and through his offspring, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later in Genesis 35, after God has changed Jacob's name to Israel, we read these words in verses 11 and 12. And God said to Israel, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Notice that Israel is now commanded to be fruitful and multiply. This is a hint that we are to recognize the nation of Israel as collectively serving as a new humanity. They are being handed the baton of the creation commission and are responsible for carrying it out. Also notice the strangeness of a nation and a company of nations shall come from you. One nation, the one named Israel but also a collective group of nations shall come from him. Interesting. How does that work? It works the same way Paul says that the promise to Abraham that he would be the father of a multitude of nations works. This is fulfilled in the church. 
And finally, notice again the promise of kings specified as coming from your own body. A line of kings will be literally descended from Jacob. The very last passage in Genesis that we need to attend to here doesn't actually use the word offspring. Instead, it uses a poetic image that refers to offspring, and it has the same shift from plural to singular. Or at least it definitely focuses attention on the singular. This is where the payoff from observing the mentions of kings comes to greater greater clarity. In Jacob's final blessing of his sons, he blesses Judah in Genesis 49, 8 to 10. And most students of scripture recognize a hugely significant messianic prophecy here. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The phrase from between his feet is a description of childbirth. It's unusual, of course, to use such an image for a man, but I think that's part of the poetry. The image is jarring but clear. The key line, however, is at the end, and we have again a masculine singular pronoun, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This is not a picture of the peoples obeying Judah. It's the peoples obeying a single male descendant of Judah who will have a scepter, a ruler's staff, and thus be a king. So to Abraham and Sarah, the Lord had promised kings. And now Judah is promised a particular king who would receive universal obedience from all nations. From this, we now discover the single male offspring of the woman announced back in Genesis 3.15 will be a king. Now, with Jacob having 12 sons who will in turn comprise the nation of Israel, we see the picture narrowing down the line of offspring to one tribe and to one king from that tribe. Thus, in the prophetic blessing spoken by Jacob, it is Judah, the fourth-born son, after the first three sons disqualified themselves most egregiously. It is Judah whose offspring will produce the one king to rule them all, one king to find them, one king to bring them all, and in the light, bind them to himself. Sorry, I've been listening to the Lord of the Rings lately. <laughs> but the imagery works. This is what is being presented to us by the book of Genesis as a whole. One king to come, to undo what Adam did, to defeat the serpent finally, and to bring rebels to God. As we look beyond the book of Genesis, we find an interesting development in this theme within the books of Moses. In the midst of their wandering in the wilderness, Israel encounters the pagan prophet Balaam. And Balaam delivers a prophetic oracle that draws from the poetic sections of Genesis that we've looked at. In Numbers 24, 17 and 19, we hear Balaam pronounce, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. 
A single royal male descendant, offspring of Israel, offspring of the woman who will crush the head of Moab. Sound familiar? As Professor James Hamilton summarizes in light of Genesis 3.15, bad guys get broken heads in the Bible. Fast forward many generations. The nation of Israel has a chosen king for themselves, but not from the tribe of Judah as prophesied by Jacob. King Saul showed his serpentine ways, ruling the nation but not trusting the Lord. So the Lord replaced him in fulfillment of his promises, anointing young David, son of Jesse, of the tribe of Judah, to be the next king. And after Saul's suicide, in the midst of warfare with his constant enemies, the Philistines, David becomes king. And in 2 Samuel 7.11, the Lord delivers a message to King David through the prophet Nathan. Moreover, Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh will make you a house. Thus the Lord promises David a dynasty, a line of kings. But in the very next verse, the ambiguous house becomes offspring. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you, who shall come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So, is this single male offspring, David's son, or is it a descendant generations away? The ambiguity stands. This offspring will build a temple for the Lord. Solomon certainly will do that. But there may be a dual reference here. Another male descendant will build a temple for the Lord of a different sort. Not a brick and mortar building, but a temple made from living stones. Thus the royal offspring of the woman is tracked through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and now David. As you may recall, Matthew opens his gospel tracing the genealogy of Jesus highlighting his lineage as the son of David, the son of Abraham. And famously, Luke traces his ge- Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam. And wouldn't you know it, as if he was reading Genesis, right after he identifies Jesus as the son of Adam and the son of God, Luke describes how the Holy Spirit led Jesus to prepare for temptation from Satan. A pre-fight skirmish shows Jesus' supremacy over the evil entity who used that ancient serpent to lead humanity into death and destruction. But will he be able to slay the dragon? Luke 4 displays a battle of words, and Jesus wins. But will the final defeat of the dragon require more than mere words? There is to be a plural offspring of the woman as well, and it is ultimately those who share Eve's faith. The story of the Old Testament, not just Genesis, is largely the story of the narrowing down of the offspring of the woman until finally there is an offspring of one. The single male descendant shows up, and not only is he the offspring of the woman, he's also the offspring of Abraham and the offspring of David. Ultimately, the plural offspring of the woman endures through the Old Testament period, but they are reflected as only a remnant of the whole people of Israel. After the Lord reveals to Isaiah his commission to preach to Israel, only to have Israel hardened and refusing to listen to his message, he concludes by promising a remnant. And he brings in the language of offspring again. In Isaiah 6.13 we read, And though a tenth remain in the land, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. 
And then Isaiah the prophet responds, clarifying for his audience, the holy seed, offspring, is its stump. The Lord, who brings judgment against his rebellious people, ensures that a holy offspring remains. It's a tiny stump, but in Isaiah 11, we'll find that this stump is associated with the root of Jesse, who will bear fruit through a particular branch. In Isaiah's day, of course, David and Solomon are both long in the past. And famously, right after the mention of holy offspring, Isaiah 7 presents us with Isaiah's prophecy to King Ahaz, which focuses on a certain virgin conceiving and giving birth to a son who will be called Emmanuel, the son who, according to chapter 9, will also be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9, 7 then adds to the characterization of this coming son, this coming king, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. It is this branch, this son of David, this king, who will be the servant of Yahweh in the last portion of the book of Isaiah. And in the famous suffering servant song, we read this tantalizing line in 53.10. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. According to Genesis 3.15, Satan would strike or crush the heel of a particular individual male descendant of the woman. And this would be a fatal wound. Even as this man crushes Satan's head, the man will be struck and killed. Thus in Genesis 3.15, it seems like this would be the end of the line for the offspring of the woman. A final male descendant would be killed as he kills the great enemy of God's people. But Isaiah 53 tells us that behind the serpent's strike is the will of Yahweh. The Lord planned this. The Lord prophesied this. The Lord predestined it all. And through this death-dealing blow, the Lord's will prospers. And this man sees his offspring. In other words, he sees to it that his offspring, the offspring of the woman, continue. And he is alive to see it. Isaiah's song prophesied the resurrection of the slaughtered man. His offspring are those he births, that is to say, those he causes to be born again. And he will cause dead people to be born from above through the living and abiding word of God, through the gospel. How does his being crushed, how does his death accomplish this? Before we can answer that question, we need to back up and address the other side. Who are the offspring of the serpent? We begin with Cain, who proves himself to be offspring of the serpent. After Cain murders his brother, he becomes the first human being to receive a curse from the divine judge. And later in 1 John 3.12, John encourages Christians not to be like Cain. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. In Genesis 4, following the Lord's cursing of Cain, 
and exiling him away from his family, we get our first genealogy, and it spans from Cain, the murderer, to Lamech, the murderer who boasts of his murder and illegitimately claims God's protection. He addresses his two wives with wicked poetry, boasting of his murder and also threatening his own wives with his violent ways. While this genealogy includes evidences of God's mercy and grace as various descendants of Cain's develop certain aspects of culture, God's common grace carries forward, carries forward his plans in spite of continued human rebellion against him. The offspring of the serpent are often not labeled as such, but rather Moses shows who they are by their enmity, their hostility against the offspring of the woman. Thus, where we find the righteous offspring of the woman, we often find the offspring of the serpent attacking and opposing them. Thus, Noah, righteous offspring of the woman, stands out in his generation as a unique recipient of God's grace, while the Lord grieves the great wickedness of humanity throughout the earth. Moses gives this summary in Genesis 6-5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And while Noah receives grace from the Lord, demonstrates his righteousness relative to his generation, and obeys the Lord's command to build an ark and preserve his immediate family and representative animals, very soon after he gets off the ark, he himself experiences his own rebellion. Even after he receives the gracious covenantal assurance from the Lord that there would be no future total watery judgment from the Lord over the planet again. Right after disembarking, the Lord accepts an offering from Noah and promises never again to destroy every living creature through a watery flood. But he acknowledges that nothing has changed within human nature. In Genesis 8.21, Moses quotes the Lord's inner dialogue with himself And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In the wake of Noah's drunken self-exposure and as a response to his son Ham's inappropriate reaction to it, Noah pronounces a curse against Ham's son Canaan. Noah says, Cursed be Canaan, just as the Lord had said, Cursed be you. Cursed are you to Cain, and cursed are you to the serpent. And famously, the Canaanites become the major opponents of Israel, the offspring of the serpent in Genesis in the form of the Philistines, most commonly, all the way through the Canaanites that remain in the land through the time of David. And famously, we see the Lord pouring out His wrath against several Canaanite cities, Sodom and Gomorrah being the most infamous ones in Genesis 19. As we continue to track the offspring of the serpent, Ishmael draws our attention. When the angel of Yahweh prophetically described him in Genesis 16:12 as a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. In other words, Ishmael is offspring of the serpent, even as the Lord promises to bless and multiply his offspring even over the development and growth of the offspring of the serpent, the Lord exercises his sovereignty. When the twins, Jacob and Esau, are born, we have an interesting twist in the story. The Lord had already announced that the twins would divide in the future and that they would each multiply into nations and that the younger son would be elevated above his older twin. Esau was born first, and then we read in Genesis twenty-five, twenty-six. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. 
So his name was called Jacob. The prophecy in Genesis 3.15 indicated that the serpent would strike the heel of the single male descendant who would crush the serpent's head. The word for heel sounds like Jacob's name. And his violent seizing of his brother's heel looks like a serpent strike. Thus, Jacob's birth and naming demonstrate some resemblances to the serpent. And his character is very serpent-like as he grows into adulthood, utilizing manipulation and deception at several points with several different people, including his own father. Thus, as the Lord had announced, he, the younger twin, would overcome his older brother. And he does so through cunning and craftiness that resembles the serpent in the garden. However, it's Jacob who receives the blessing. And it's Jacob to whom the Lord extends the covenant promises. Esau despises his birthright and later wants to murder Jacob, just like Cain, just like the murderous serpent. Thus, Esau gets a genealogy in Genesis 36, which Moses uses to explicitly connect him to the Edomites, who would prove to be one of Israel's long-lasting enemies and irritations. But at the end of Genesis, another twist in the development of the serpent's offspring occurs. We've already glanced at Jacob's blessing of Judah, but a few of his other prophetic announcements toward a few of his other sons are important for our purposes. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, is condemned for his sexual immorality. Apparently, this lost him his firstborn rights. Then Simeon and Levi are condemned for their anger and violence. In Genesis 49, 7, Jacob says, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Their violence and their cursing associate Simeon and Levi with the serpent. Now, the Levites will be the tribe that God appoints to serve as priests among the nation of Israel. However, when Israel abandons the Lord, whether in the book of Judges or during the corrupt monarchy, we find the Levites leading the way through immorality and deception. We are seeing how the offspring of the serpent can be found among the offspring of the woman. Or as Paul would later put it, all, not all Israel is Israel. Finally, among the 12 tribes, we must look at Dan. Listen to Genesis 49, 17. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. Oh dear, this is an explicit connection between one of the sons of Jacob and the serpent. Dan will become the northernmost tribe, and Dan will be the location of one of Israel's golden calves, leading the northern kingdom, when the kingdom splits, into gross idolatry from which Israel never recovers. The story of the offspring of the serpent continues beyond Genesis. Prominently, we can observe Egypt's connection with the serpent, as Pharaoh wears a serpentine crown, and the Egyptians worship serpentine gods. They oppress and enslave the offspring of the woman. We've already mentioned the Canaanites. We see their opposition to Israel in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges. In 1 Samuel, King Saul wins a great victory over the Ammonites, who are led by Nachash, whose name is the Hebrew word for serpent. Thus, one begins to wonder whether Saul might be the offspring, the royal offspring of the woman who would defeat the serpent. But then Saul reveals his own serpentine ways, disregarding and disobeying God's word. And throughout Saul's reign, the Philistines remain at regular enmity with Israel, and it's the famous showdown between young David and the Philistine warrior Goliath that we should glance at for a moment. 
There's a detail in Goliath's description in 1 Samuel 17 by which the narrator hints toward Goliath's serpent-like or dragon-like character. The ESV, unfortunately, obscures this detail as it follows the King James Version here, but most other versions indicate that Goliath was covered with scale armor. And the word bronze is is repeated multiple times, which in Hebrew is spelled almost the same as the Hebrew word for serpent. Finally, hearkening back to Genesis 3.15, David, royal offspring of the woman, sinks a stone into the giant dragon's head and then cuts off his head. Thus, readers begin to wonder whether David might be the promised snake stomper. Furthering this anticipation, the son of the Ammonite Nachash, that would be offspring of the serpent, in 2 Samuel 10, wages war against Israel, and King David's forces are victorious. Another serpent crushed. Is David the one who is to come? The next chapter details David's fall, David's rebellion, his great sin with Bathsheba. As Eve saw that the fruit of the forbidden tree was good and took it and ate it, so David saw that Bathsheba was good, beautiful, and took her and consumed her. David is not the offspring of the serpent, but he's not the ultimate offspring of the woman either. The rebellion of humanity in Genesis 3 unleashed sin and death in this world so that both offspring of the woman and offspring of the serpent are sinners The offspring of the woman, however, share the faith of Eve, and they receive the blessing David speaks of in Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom Yahweh counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The warning here is for us to continue abandoning the ways of the serpent, to resist believing the lies of the devil, and to run to Jesus for forgiveness when we fail. It's not perfect people who demonstrate that they are offspring of the woman. It's people who admit their sin, seek to turn from it, and receive the forgiveness Jesus has secured in his death on the cross. The offspring of the serpent show up in the New Testament as well. Famously, Jesus, following John the Baptist, labels the Jewish leaders as a brood of vipers. And Jesus explicitly tells some Pharisees that their father is the devil. John makes it clear in 1 John 3 that you're either a child of the devil or a child of God. And verse 8 says specifically, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And then in verse 10, he describes the children of the devil as whoever does not practice righteousness, the one who does not love his brother. In the same context, John tells us back in verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. How did he do this? How does Jesus slay the dragon? Simply put, he slays the dragon by dying. Genesis 3.15 indicated that the offspring of the woman and the serpent would kill each other. The author of Hebrews makes it simple and clear in Hebrews 2.14. The eternal Son of God took on human flesh, becoming the single male descendant of the woman, so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The word translated destroy is translated by other versions as render powerless. Jesus used the enemy's weapon against him and was victorious. In Revelation 12, John sees a vision of a great red dragon. 
seeking to devour a baby boy as he's being born to a woman. It's in this passage that John finally and fully unmasks the serpent in the garden and identifies it explicitly as Satan, now depicted as this red dragon. John's vision depicts the offspring of the woman, the single male descendant, being successfully born and then immediately being snatched up to heaven. Of course, the historical reality being being portrayed is the birth of Jesus and then the ascension of Jesus. Well, we know what happened in between. He lived as a boy who grew into a man, and he obeyed God completely, and then he was executed. He was struck down, and he was pierced. Simply put, he died. And Satan had a part to play as he indwelt Judas, enabling him to go through with an ugly betrayal that would lead to Jesus' arrest and execution. Then Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, and then he ascended to heaven. I believe John's vision depicts what happened next, immediately after Jesus' ascension. The red dragon followed him to heaven. Seeing that killing him on earth didn't prove to be permanent, the dragon followed him to heaven. But the dragon was not permitted to re-enter the heavenly throne room. Instead, the archangel Michael summarily bounces him. He was thrown down to the earth. And And then John tells us in Revelation 12, 17... Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Thus the single male descendant of the woman has dealt the death blow to the devil, yet he continues for a time, enraged and on the hunt, and he's now targeting all the rest of the offspring of the woman. Now the woman in John's vision is not Eve, Most interpreters recognize her as a representation of Israel, and I think this is correct. Faithful remnant Israel, specifically. Thus, Israel gives birth to the Messiah, and then Israel gives birth to the church, the rest of her offspring. In other words, I believe Revelation 12 gives us a picture of Satan's continued opposition to the church as the church continues and completes Israel. In any case, other passages spell out more clearly the victory of Christ telling exactly how his death defeated the devil. Consider Colossians 2, 13 to 15, and then we're done for today. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God forgave the sins of dead people. How could a just and holy God do that? He canceled the record of debt. He erased the rap sheet. He wiped out the charges against us. He paid the debt owed. How did he do that? He figuratively nailed the rap sheet to the cross. What does the figure of speech communicate in reality? Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, as Peter expresses it in 1 Peter 2.24. That is to say, he erased our name from our rap sheet and signed his own name. 
as though he had committed all the sins we've been accused of and are indeed guilty of. When he died, he was being sentenced to death for crimes he did not commit, but he substituted himself in the place of us guilty sinners. What impact did this have on Satan? Colossians 2.15 tells us that through Jesus' death on the cross, God triumphed over all the spiritual rulers and authorities, including Satan. He put them to open shame, using their own great weapon against them. And most importantly, he disarmed them. What does it mean to disarm someone? It means to take away their weapons. So what does this mean in Satan's case? Well, essentially, it means that Jesus' death for sinners removed Satan's big gun, his secret weapon, the only weapon that really matters for Satan's ultimate schemes. What has Satan always been after? As he overturned the order of creation in Genesis 3, he brought chaos into God's ordered world, and he led humanity into sin so that the divine judge would condemn and thus execute them. This is always Satan's ultimate goal. He wants to get people to sin so that the divine judge will righteously condemn them and sentence them to eternal death. God defeats the devil by eliminating his ability to rightly accuse sinners. He forgives sins instead of punishing them in themselves, in the sinners. He forgives sins righteously because he punished those sins in the death of his own son. As the song we sang earlier proclaims, Jesus trampled over death by death. He crushed the head of the serpent, dealt the death blow to the devil, and nullified his power over death. This is the meaning of the depiction of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 as having the keys of death and Hades because he died and rose again and is alive forevermore. Satan's power over death has been removed in the case of those whose sins have been forgiven. As Revelation 12 depicts, though the dragon, the accuser, has been cast out of heaven and down to earth, he continues to rage against God's people, the church, the plural offspring of the woman. He continues his attacks in the world through deception and affliction, seeking people to devour Since Jesus has already crushed his head, where does that leave us? Well, we are to continue the work of snake stomping. And we are to anticipate the future and final destruction of Satan. The Apostle Paul highlights our union with Christ and our union specifically with his dragon-slaying, snake-stomping work. In Romans 16.20, he alludes to Genesis 3.15 when he writes, The God of peace will soon... Crush Satan under your feet. Thus, even as the single male descendant of the woman has accomplished the decisive crushing blow, a final crushing awaits. And the Lord promises that the plural offspring of the woman will participate. Our union with Jesus is such that what he accomplished already will be something we experience more fully in the future. Thus, when Revelation 20 depicts the final expulsion of Satan from creation, when the Lord casts him into the lake of fire for eternal torment, it is the church, the saints, all God's people together who will celebrate having conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony, the proclamation of the gospel, 
as Revelation 12.11 summarizes it. So in the meantime, the church is called to resist the devil firm in our faith. We stand firm, outfitted with the Messiah's own armor, trusting in the gospel, the gospel first announced in Genesis 3.15. We must beware of the serpent's ways and reject all forms of deception in our speech and in our living. We must cling to the dragon-slaying Messiah. He has killed the dragon, and he has gotten the girl. We rest in his victory. We anticipate its final consummation, and we seek to follow the Lamb wherever he leads until he returns. He leads us in the triumphal procession, and we follow, announcing victory to all who will listen. We proclaim the brokenness and the bankruptcy of this world system, and we herald the victorious death and resurrection of our great King. John's words seem fitting to conclude from 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let us pray. Father, you have pictured for us the great warfare of history. And you have shown us how the decisive battle has already been fought and won decisively. We pray that you would help us to trust you, that that is true, that Satan really has no power over us as your people. We pray that you would help us to trust that his opposition to us cannot finally harm us, or as John himself says, the evil one cannot touch us who have been born of God. Help us to believe that and live like it's true. Help us to resist the temptation of giving Satan more credit than he deserves. Help us to remember his doom and his defeat. He is the great loser. Help us to think of him that way and not think of him as this great threat. Yes, he's like a roaring lion seeking to devour whom he may. But his roar, his roar, that's all he's got. As we continue to suffer in this world, and some of it is surely at His direction, help us to trust that everything that He does is sifted through Your good and gracious hand. Help us to rest, knowing that we don't fight the battle with our own strength, that our resistance is to trust You. Simply, simply trust You. Give us that kind of faith. Work it in us by your spirit. Continue to put these truths before our face until we believe it in our bones so that when our bones break and when our body dies, we'll trust you all the more. Thank you for being with us in our suffering. Thank you for sending your son to take on human body, human flesh, human blood that could be struck and killed for our sake and in our place. Thank you for granting us forgiveness. We need it. And we pray that you'd help us to seek it at every moment of every day, acknowledging our failures, acknowledging our sins, and seeking to run to Christ all the more diligently. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Remain seated, please.